What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Diary of an Empath. We are wrapping up 2022 and what a year it's been. I remember doing this episode this time last year and talking about like the just the crazy couple months that we had had. COVID had been wrapping up. I had literally just been, well, it's not wrapping up. We're still going, but I had just started my podcast and we were a couple months strong. And I just remember thinking like, wow, I can't believe just how much it's grown and I can't wait to see where it goes next year. And now here we are a year later, we've made it to the top 20 in mental health globally. We've been on the charts, we're doing big things. And it's because each and every one of you have continued to listen. You've been sharing, you you leave me messages, I read them. And it's just amazing how much of support that I've been getting from you guys and how much it's helping you. That's what I love. I love, love, love that it's reaching so many people. I think on Spotify, uh, we've reached 98 countries, which is just unbelievable. Like I still can't wrap my head around it. So for this episode, I wanted to highlight my favorite guests and my favorite episodes. And these were the most downloaded episodes that you guys listen to. So I wanted to put a couple of my favorites into one. I couldn't fit them all, but I just wanted to highlight a few you. Also, I wanted to quickly tell you guys that I'm going to be doing a webinar on December 30th, all about the law of attraction and emotion code. I have a special guest coming on to talk about emotion code and how you can implement these into your life to help you manifest what you're looking for in terms of relationships, career, how to help you heal, and how to explain why energy stays stagnant in the body and what you can do about it. So uh, super pumped for that. There's very limited spots, so make sure that you sign up. Link is in the show notes below. And of course, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. All right, let's get this party started. And thank you guys once again for all the support. For you, when you were in the pods, and I know that obviously you ended up, for those who haven't watched the show, spoiler alert, she got married. So (laughs) when you met your partner at that time, what were your initial thoughts about him? About Jared? Oh, oh, in the pods or after? <laughs> in the pods. Let's start with the pods. In, in the <laughs> pods, I, I was like, oh my God, look at this man. He's opening up. He can talk about his emotions. He's insightful. He's understanding. Yeah, that was pretty much my perception of him. And he's just a strong lover. I could tell he like felt his emotions deeply. And those were all things that I I wanted. So yeah, that was my perception of him then. I remember yeah. there was a scene and a part of that process where he opened up emotionally to you about mm-hmm. um, some things from his past. And yeah. I think for me, that's kind of when I saw that connection. And I feel yeah. like vulnerability is so difficult for so many people. And if mm-hmm. you're like me, and I think you are, vulnerability is really attractive to me because, you know, that can show me that you can be open. But what I've learned over time, at least for me, that Mm -hmm. emotional vulnerability does not equal emotional availability. And I've had to learn that the hard way. And yeah, it's, and that was, that was a really big Oh, knife to the heart for me on many situations. And Mm -hmm. I have, I'm still learning those lessons. There was an incident in the show where you found out that 
you were Jarrett's second choice. And I think we all kind of felt a little knife in the heart for you at that moment. And you expressed your, your emotions that it bothered you because I think romantically and, you know, when we're in these situations, we always want to be someone's first choice. And I, I saw that you struggled with that. How did that affect you during this process? And did it continue to be on your mind even after the show ended? It definitely just made me kind of, I won't say it made me put my guard up, but it did make me hyper aware to like any situation where I could possibly be again, a second choice. I just wanted to, my concern was don't treat me as if I am a second choice. I should be the priority, even though like that's how it started. And my logic explained it away. Like, well, that's the premise of the show. I am. It happens. Um, so moving forward, just make sure that like, you don't treat me as if I'm the second choice. So that was always like in the back of my mind during the process, but very quickly, um, before we got married, it, it, I didn't like, it was an issue maybe for the first week and then it wasn't anymore for me because then we had other things to worry about. <laughs> like our, mm-hmm. our differences going to get in the way of this, like, what is this going to even work, um, type of thing. But it was no longer the second choice thing wasn't no longer an issue after like the first week of us being back here in Chicago. Um, because then we had other things to worry about. But, um, after we were married, I didn't think about it again until the show aired. And then all of these people are saying the same thing. Like, well, you're his second choice. You're his second choice. I'm like, Oh my God. Like the fact that I have to relive and like relearn Mm -hmm. and like reheal from this all over again is exhausting. But, um, it wasn't really an issue throughout. We just had other things to worry about. Like right. that was the last thing um, on our minds, really. I know recently you announced that you are getting divorced and that mm-hmm. was something that I know came with a heavy heart for you. So my oh, first yeah. question is, how are you? I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay and getting better. Um, right now, I'll just say definitely just okay. Um, there's a lot of transition happening right now on top of like knowing that after the altar is coming out, so I'm going to have to relive a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. which is the hardest part of it. But um, yeah, I'm all right. Well, my mother was an extraordinary emotional manager. And what she did for me was allow me to understand not only my emotionality, but other people's emotionality and more than logic, more than facts, more than history that determines what people do think and say. And I took what she taught me about understanding people and getting myself understood to the bench. And then I used it with some success at reaching people. And then when I took it on television, I could reach even more people. And I saw that my mother's understanding of people's emotional lives that she taught me to understand allowed me to be more effective and persuasive. So I remember there was one particular post that you made a while back that you mentioned that your mother was in the stands when you were sentencing a young man. And she said something to you about the way that you sentenced him. And you and she said something along the lines of, what you did changes nothing. And you had said that from that point forward, it changed the way that you sentence people. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why that changed the way that you sentence people from that point Absolutely. forward? Absolutely. I was sentencing a guy on a domestic violence charge, and I, I gave him some time. And then, and I was very sincere about 
You disrespected the woman that you stood before God to say that you were going to love and cherish. And I gave him the whole nine yards just and you know, how dare this and that and the other. And my mother came back and she says, let me tell you what you did wrong. She says, you didn't change anything. You didn't help that woman. All she's thinking about, all he's thinking about as he's getting driven off to jail is that B he hit and that other B that put him in jail. He never, you never made him look at his behavior and ask himself, how did what I do get me here? And that changed everything because after that day, I didn't think that I did a good job simply because I said what I said. I decided whether or not I did a good job if I was able to engage in a meaningful conversation with the person in front of me. And in order to do that, I only had a few minutes, is to really understand somebody's emotional state and then have a conversation on that basis. And the reason I know it had value is once I started doing that, not often, but every once in a while I would get a letter from prison, because you know it's prison because it's written in pencil, saying, I don't want you to think I'm a bad person, or I wanted you to know that. That meant he heard me and that he's spending some time in jail because he's got plenty of time to think about it. And then I became a better judge and not before. So a lot of these generational chains have been passed on for generations so long that we don't even question them, right? But they started somewhere. A lot of people talk about how these had roots in colonization, right? The violence that is done. What we have to know is that it's been present in a lot our lives for a long time. And a lot of the parenting back, as far as we can remember, there was like a very much so power differential that was very present, where the parent had complete control of the child and the child had to obey. And you had to do anything in your power to make sure that was what happened. And a lot of our parents, grandparents, never really learned to talk to children. They learned to use abuse and force as a way to make them comply. A lot of our parents, when they were children, they internalized the message of, oh, I deserve it because I did this thing that was wrong. They never learned that they could have been parented in a different way, which is why we have a lot of adults who still normalize it and say, like, this is what my parents had to do, or there was just no other way, or I was a difficult child, I was a bad child, and that's why my parents hit me, that's why they yelled, They that's why they punished me the way that they did. It's all part of that same cycle where children didn't know that there were better ways and parents really didn't have the tools or knew that they were there were better ways to do things. And when you have people who break cycles as adults, they realize that, no, that wasn't okay, actually. And the people who normalize it believe like, yeah, that had to be done. The difference is the person has awareness that there are other ways to do things. And the person who's stuck in like, this is all we know. So that therefore, it must be all that it can be done. And they, there is this sense of, my parents want what, what's best for me. That's why they did this. And if they want what's best for me, it's because they love me. And we have to remember that for children, they depend on their caregivers for survival, for food to be taken care of. 
and for connection, which is so important for human beings. If I begin to be aware that my parent is not the person that I think they are, if I begin to feel like, no, like a person who loves you doesn't do these things, then what's going to happen? We're going to see a disconnection from the child and the parent, which is what happens in a lot of situations where a parent is very abusive and the child is able to see that the parent is not caring and it's not loving and that they're wrong, right? So in a way, it's a way to preserve this emotional connection to the parent. And in adulthood, a lot of the times, because we're no longer that child, we see a parent that is very different. They're more engaged. They want to know more about us. They still come from this very caring way that they told us with words, right? Like, I love you. That's why I hit you. That's why I do all of these things. But now they can no longer do that. So we're just getting the I love you and I care about you. But what a lot of adults are finding is that they are having all of these emotional reactions to their parents where like, I don't know. I don't understand why I'm so impatient with my parents if they're very loving I understand that what they did was because they loved me, right? And so I normalize it. I don't question what they did, but I still don't have the closest relationship with my parents. I still don't feel very loving towards them. It's hard for me to hug them. It's hard for me to say, I love you, right? So this is how then that manifests in our relationships. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we had parents who are very loving and abusive. And so then as adults, we have this idea of love as nurturing and at the same time abusive or like there's there could be somebody who's really loving who's also abusive or there can be somebody who really cares for you, but is also abusive. And then we don't know where that line lies and we start normalizing things at an unconscious level. It's mm -hmm. okay if your partner lashes out that way. Like, it's not a big deal. They didn't hit you. Yes, they were yelling, but, you know, everyone yells with their angry. And then you start getting introduced to these ideas of, well, not really. <laughs> not everyone yells with their angry. Not everyone slams or when they're upset, you know, not everyone um, holds you like or, or touches you in a way that's physically you know um, harsh when they're upset you know they don't cross your physical boundaries and that's how the lines get blurred and this is why like so many people normalize what happened then and they and if you talk about you know generational cycles they'll say no this is how we do things and then they go on to repeat these same things with their kids and what they're teaching their kids is the same things that they learn about love and connection. But if someone's in a relationship, what are some examples of what maybe what a narcissist will do? Because we hear those terms love bombing and gaslighting a lot, but not a lot of people really understand what that means or maybe what that looks like in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So narcissists in the beginning of a relationship look very different after that first stage. So in a, in a narcissistic abuse cycle, there's three stages, kind of like a fourth, which I'll, I'll talk about, generally speaking, three stages. And in the beginning stage of a relationship, it is very calculated. So what you'll notice is somebody who, you know, and I jokingly say this, but I don't, I'm not really joking. If you hear the word soulmate in like the first three months, four months, five months, run, because here's the thing. 
I know it sounds amazing and fairy tales and, and truth be told, like, who wouldn't want to hear that? We all want to hear that. And I blame Disney for that. <laughs> but like, <laughs> like, like, you know, um, they don't work out like that. That's not real. <laughs> um, right. There is no prince, you know, it, it doesn't work like that. So we're, we want that. And that's how our society has kind of structured relationships. And so we have this idealized version. So there's a reason why a narcissist goes after that route, right? So things like you're my soulmate, where have you been my whole life? I cannot believe how much we have in common. I've been I, I, like, you're it. I feel it. I know it when, and it sounds great, but what I tell, what I tell people is take a step back and ask yourself this, how, and I know there's people that are going to disagree with me on this and that's fine. And maybe on date one, you met your soulmate and you knew it and you're still married and you're happy. I'm not disagreeing with that. It's just really rare. And I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket for that. And it's, I'm being real. I'm not being pessimistic. How can someone be your soulmate when they don't even know what food you like, where you like to travel, what you like to do in your free time, when your birthday is, what your middle name is, where your parents grew up. I mean, they know nothing about you. So what are they basing this soulmate perception on? And, and I'm not saying you're not wonderful, but really, what are they basing that on? So that's number one. We all know that when we start dating somebody, we we want to be in as much contact with them as possible. It feels good, right? They play into that. So you will get text messages, communication, phone calls constantly. I miss you. I can't wait to see you again. Um, I'm thinking about you, and which again feels great, but it's also not appropriate early on in dating. There should be this boundary that even if you want to call the person all the time, you don't, right? So things like bombarding you at your office with flowers, you know, it's not cute. It's control-based. It's marking their territory. It's trying to get ownership of you. All of this is about trying to get ownership of you. It's not sweet, right? It's not lovey-dovey, I met the love of my life. It's control. And it's very easy for people to fall into that. You don't have to be an empath to fall into that. You don't have to be um, you know, someone who experienced trauma to fall into that. It, has not, it does not discriminate. The only mm-hmm. way somebody's not going to fall into that is if they are aware of the red flags ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And they hear me saying, oh, wait, Okay, that this is right because otherwise you're going to fall right into it, and and I can't blame you. Um, then what starts to happen is they'll do things that's called future faking. So they'll 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 make promises like I'm going to take you to Paris in six months. Um, I can't wait to get married. We're going to have three kids. Their names are going to be this, this, and this. And you talk about these promises that never happen, but they use it as a way again to keep you in. And suck you in and hold you in, waiting for those things to happen in the future that never do. Um, or if they do, they deliberately don't happen the way that they told you they would happen. Um, then the other things to keep in mind, listen to how they speak to people. How do they speak to waiters and waitresses? Are they condescending? Are they overly engaging? Like, are they going to extremes with that? Listen to how they speak to their family. Do they even talk to their family? How do they discuss their exes? Are they victims and everything and all their exes are crazy? Um, Are they going through really like multiple, like just legal stuff? 
constantly, um, but again, always playing that victim card. Um, trying to think of some other really good kind of. Um, so when we're talking about gaslighting, because oh, we hear the gaslighting is, a lot. Yeah. So, so that doesn't happen yet. But one of the other things, and this is where the gaslighting comes into play, is in the beginning of a relationship, they will purposely make you feel super, super comfortable being vulnerable. And the reason for that isn't because they care what you're saying. They don't. But what they're doing is they will match your story to make you feel like they get it. They too went through the same thing. They're lying. Narcissists are compulsive liars. They're doing it strategically and they store away your vulnerabilities back here. And they hold them for a later date. Once they have you in the relationship and you kind of go into that next stage in the abuse cycle, so this devaluing stage where they really start to strip down your sense of self, your self-concept, start to isolate you from friends and family, that's when the gaslighting starts. So what gaslighting is, is a strategy, again, very manipulative. Yes, they know what they're doing for the sole purpose of trying to gain control over you, gain control over your narrative meaning the way you interpret yourself in relation to the world and gain control over your emotions. So things like, you know, um, why were you out? So you could say, why were you out so late last night? You came home at three in the morning. Where were you? They're going to go back. I was going to say card catalog, but then that makes me sound like I'm ancient. So they're going to go back (laughs) into their file (laughs) and they're going to pull out fear of abandonment that you talked about because, you know, your dad left when you were five and you've always kind of had this fear and they're going to throw it right at you and make you feel crazy by saying, relax, you're overreacting. Like I'm not your dad, you know, like that kind of stuff. And so they make you feel like your reality is not accurate. And so you then end up needing them to define reality for you. And that's when it becomes super dangerous because then you're in something that you don't even realize is as dysfunctional as it is. And that's kind of where we start to lose people in these relationships. That gaslighting strategy is super deliberate. Then they're left apologizing. So before you know it, they're out till three in the morning doing God knows what. You call them out on it as you should. They pull up these vulnerabilities, throw them back at you, somehow make it your fault. It's your perception. You're wrong you're crazy, you're overreacting, and then you find yourself apologizing Mm -hmm. for your actions and your interpretation. And so it's this vicious cycle that starts to happen. It really does a number on people's self-concept. I remember when I when I saw one of the shows, I think it was the the beginning opening episode and Gordon Ramsay watches like I, his face when you're coming out. He just looked very like stunned, confused, a little like curious as well. When when you first came out and you made that first dish for them, were you nervous or were you were you just like whatever happens, <laughs> happens? Because looking at, at your oh, face, no. looking at the judges, it was amazing. Nervous is the like uh, downplaying it. I was incredibly <laughs> nervous. I remember my palms are sweating, you know, and even though I said like I was only there for the experience and not really expecting to win, of course, I'm still competitive. And of course, nerves can still set in. And, and you know, who really wants to be judged, especially by someone like Gordon Ramsay for right. their food. So <laughs> I was definitely nervous. I was definitely scared. But part of me just knew like, well, I'm going to try my best. And if I get an apron and and they let me continue on, then great. And if not, then it wasn't meant to be. So I did have that mentality. I think I had a 
fairly healthy mentality. Of course, I wanted the apron, but I knew that, you know, if they sent me home, then it just wasn't meant to be. I love that. Yeah, I was watching that episode and I'm just like, oh, this is going to be so interesting. But I love, I just love how it was so surprising to them. It's almost like they were just so (laughs) shocked and so curious at the same time. And as you went through these episodes, you just seemed to prove them wrong. One episode in particular that I want to talk about that really stood out, and I think that you'll remember this uh, very easily, is the crab episode. And I remember specifically one person saying, like, what kind of guy gives a live crab to the blind girl? <laughs> and for, for those that are listening who haven't seen this uh, show or this episode, um, it was a episode where another contestant got to choose what the other contestants were going to cook. And he chose to give Christine a live crab to cook with. So take me back to that. What were you thinking? How did you maneuver that? I... I wasn't surprised that I was given the live crab. And I think a lot of people were like really shocked uh, on the show that, that Ryan would give me the live crab. But for me, I actually felt kind of flattered because I felt like he took me as serious competition and Mm -hmm. knew that it would be to my disadvantage to give me a live crab. So for me, it, I felt like it was a smart move on his on his behalf, and I don't, you know, detest him at all for that. I think it was a smart play. Uh, I remember though thinking that I was probably the only contestant that would have preferred the canned crab over the live crab because <laughs> that would have been a lot easier for me to manage, and I knew exactly what I would do with canned crab. But of course, uh, what's a competition without these sorts of crazy challenges? So uh, mm-hmm. I knew I had to deal with this live crab, and I'm, you know, once my head is in the game, I'm just kind of 100 percent going forward and just ran with it and figured I'll try my best. And uh, I had no idea though, that, that I I think I was told later very recently when I rewatched that episode that the crab actually had rubber bands on its pinchers and I had no idea. So I was of course very scared uh, (laughs) to try to get that crab uh, cooked and, and prepared to in a dish, but it was nerve wracking, but I have worked with live crab before, but I think it's mm-hmm. it's a different animal when you're doing that on television with cameras and people watching. Yeah, I, I bet. I was on the edge of my seat rooting for you. I'm like, oh my God, what is going to happen? And I, there were so many times watching this show where I cried with you, I laughed with you. And so I think, <laughs> I think so much of your energy and just who you are is so relatable. Do you feel like being not only an Asian American woman, but also um, a, a person with a disability, do you feel like that has maybe changed the way that we look at individuals who are in these types of roles, such as, you know, being a chef or doing things that are not typical of one with disabilities or even minority? I, I think my my platform and, and just my being in the public eye definitely has helped. I still think society has a long way to go um, mm-hmm. in regards to giving equal treatment to people with who are not like them, whether it's being a different ethnicity or nationality or different religion or um, sexual orientation or ability versus disability. I think, you know, we still have a long way to go, but I think uh, I would like to think that I've somewhat in some small way contributed to moving uh, society more towards an open mind, I think, towards people that are not like them and being able to do things that people perhaps once thought was not possible. Yeah, I love that. I agree. Because I think that even just watching the show, 
people were very curious. And I think even watching you to see, well, how is she going to maneuver this? How is she going to do this? And it just seems like time and time again, even though you had these disabilities, you were still up to par and these competitions, I mean, you were so competitive and everyone knew that, but it just seemed like no matter what you did, you always did things your best. And I think that that really showed through your food, through your work ethic, and even your your attitude and your humbleness, because that goes a long way too. I, I think that's what I really enjoyed about watching you was just the way that you talked to other people, the way that you handled things. And, you know, I think a lot of people can, can learn from that. I know there's a lot of things on TV that we don't always see. There's things that are edited and cut down, but you know, I I really really enjoy just your attitude towards life. Do you think that going through what you went through changed your outlook on on life or how you view the world? Well, first of all, I appreciate you um, saying those nice words about me. Um, secondly, I guess to answer your question, I I do think that having gone through a lot of the challenges that I've dealt with in life from losing my mom when I was young to being diagnosed with a you know life-changing autoimmune condition to losing my vision and then going on to compete in something like MasterChef that was pretty cutthroat. I, I feel like all of these challenges in life have changed my character in a way that is much more positive and better, meaning I've become a much more compassionate person. I think I'm stronger in many ways. And I feel like I, in some ways, have gained a certain amount of wisdom, I think, and having gone through the stuff I've, I've gone through. So for me, I think my outlook and my attitude has changed. I find that I appreciate much more so the small things and the small joys in life, like something as simple as just a really good uh, comforting meal or a nice glass of wine or laughing with my friends or my family or petting my dog. I think these things like they used to be things that we don't really think twice about. But I think when you've gone through some pretty harrowing experiences in life and realizing that, hey, it's these small things in life that bring so much joy that really make life great to live. And and I think these experiences have made me change my attitude and and look more towards the positive things in life. So let me, uh, let me give you a, a different perspective on that as well. So okay. I, do I agree with you entirely? Yes. I, I think that there could be better communication, right? But here's the thing as a man, it's one of those things where sometimes we like the fact that you are sitting there worried about that. Sometimes as a man, we like the fact that you're sitting there thinking about whether we should text you or not, because guess what? The guys that are sitting there texting you every second of the day are the ones you're not attracted to. You know what I mean? The problem is, is we've been built and kind of told by women, if you over text or if you're too clingy, then, you know, we're not going to like you, right? If you show too much effort, then it's too much. So I think the problem is, is like finding that balance between being able to communicate well and not coming off as a fucking simp, I guess, in 2022. <laughs> and I think that's the hard part is like, you know. We, we kind of almost want to have this, you know, look or, or this appearance as if we are so busy and that we can't text you because we also know that in a weird way, y'all are attracted to that. You guys are attracted to the man that doesn't give you the time of day. So, so it's finding that balance between kind of getting you to get on the hook a little bit and also communicating well is, is definitely a, a hard thing to do as a man. But again, I, I'll tell you right now. There's a lot of men that know what they're doing when they aren't texting you. It's almost on purpose rather than 
oh my God, I completely forgot about you. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I know I should have texted her, but maybe I'll give her a day because, you know, maybe I wanted her to squirm a little bit. I want the simp. I want the person that texts me every day. You want you honestly, <laughs> I, I the difference is, is I'm healthy. I'm ready. I have self-awareness. I yes. have self-insight. I know what I want. And I want the man who communicates with me. And I'm gonna communicate that. I will match effort. But if it's not being given to me, yeah. then I don't I don't want games. That's just me personally. Like I, I guess I'm a unicorn. I don't want any games. I want the person who reaches out, who says how he's feeling, who's texting. And guess what? If I'm not interested, I'm gonna say that and I want the same thing back. And I think that just communication styles and dating is so difficult. So when it comes to men and emotions, because let's just be honest, there is a stigma that men are not as emotional as women. And I think that's bullshit. I think men are just as capable of having strong emotions, just like women are, but maybe show it different because of societal norms or you know what they were told, just like you said, that this is the way you're supposed to be with dating and, and relationships. Do you feel like it takes men longer mm -hmm to establish emotions than women do? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, to be honest, I really do. I, I really do. I, I think it takes us a little while to, to make the commitments in our hearts to a woman, to be honest. Like I really do. Like it takes a lot of thought. Like, it, it, you know, you're thinking about it more than you're feeling it. I think men in general are, are less emotional than women. I feel like that's just natural. Again, you know, we, we want to call this, everything is equal, but I, I don't, I really don't think it is. Because for me, you know, a lot of my dating sometimes is not like emotionally. I think a lot of that almost stems from thought. A lot of it almost stems from like, do I think this person is, is pushing me forward? Is she making me a better partner? And a lot of those things aren't necessarily emotional feelings. They're actually more logical feelings, right? And I guess that doesn't even make sense, logical feelings. But that's exactly how I would best describe it for a man sometimes is, you know, there's a lot of times where. I don't think we're just leading with just our emotion or feelings. I think we're leading with logic and then letting our emotions follow the logic, if that makes sense. So I think that that's why you kind of have this delay is because, again, we are not necessarily sometimes thinking, you know, with our feelings. We're thinking with our mind and with our dick. So that's usually what's happening <laughs> first. And then the emotional stuff kind of comes <laughs> afterwards like, okay, wait a minute, I actually do like hanging out with this girl. This is, this girl's actually pretty cool. Like what the fuck? Like I didn't even realize, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it's almost like it like catches us like at random. Um, and I, and I think it takes a, like men a little bit longer to process our feelings than women. I, I could have sworn I, I heard this on like TikTok. So I don't know how fucking true it is, but um, <laughs> it, it's one of those things where men just in general needs, like we process our emotions differently than women, how like kind of women process them almost in the moment and they're leading with their emotions. Whereas like men, it might take us a couple days to a couple weeks to fully feel some shit. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes it like, let's just say, like, okay, there is, I'll, I'll give you one specific situation where I was coaching this woman and I think she was um, in her, I think she just turned 30 or something like that. The guy that she was dating was, I think, pushing 40 or something around there. They got into a big falling out and they get into a really big fight. He says that he doesn't want to be in this relationship anymore. She's too controlling or, or something along those lines. Um, but she was on the phone with me telling me like, I don't understand. Like, I felt like we were such a good couple. Like, I really felt like things were really great. You know, we both have kids and, you know, everybody got along and I just don't understand what really happened. I feel like I just hit his boil, like his, his breaking point. He just lost his mind. And she's like, I don't know what to do. Like, should I contact him? Should I go no contact? Like, where do I go from here? I'm like, at the end of the day, 
he's the person that told you he didn't want to be with you and he separated with you. I was like, to be honest, I think you shouldn't contact him at all. I think you got to let him do what he needs to do. We pretty much came up with a plan that she's not going to reach out to him and contact him. She's like, you know, they already had a conversation where she went over. I was like, the, the only way you're going to have a conversation between you and this man is if it happens naturally, let's say you bump into him in the street. But I was like, you can't be the first one to reach out because he's the one who said he wanted this space or that he didn't want to be with you. And again, in my, in my opinion, if somebody says that to you, it's their responsibility mm -hmm. to make up for what it is. Right. She goes, no contact. She's like, it's really difficult. She's like, I wanted to text you. I wanted to text him. She's like, I just didn't. After 11 days, he sends her a text. He's like, I've been a mess. I'm so fucking sorry. Like this, that, and the other thing. And he pretty much like came back and they've been together. Like I think ever since, but I think and that's what I was trying to say is sometimes it takes a man not having you for a little while to be able to actually feel the feelings. Like I just broke up with a girl like three or four weeks ago. The first time I had like an anxious sleep where I was like, fuck, did I make the right decision was two or three weeks after we had broken up the first two or three weeks i'm all happy things are great and that's what i'm saying sometimes as a guy it, it, it doesn't hit you until a couple of weeks later something like happens and you're like fuck you know did i make the right decision did i do the thing that i was supposed to do i don't really know and again i think this goes back to the whole theory that it, it does take longer for a man to process it does take longer for a man to understand his feelings um because we do just react sometimes very just like off the cuff or, or in the moment. Sometimes, you know, men are like dogs with shiny objects. It's like, oh shit. You know what I mean? Like, oh, look over there. Like, I want to go touch that. You know, it's really pretty. <laughs> we don't actually make the determination of our feelings uh, very quickly. Somebody who ghosts is somebody who is struggling to communicate in that moment. And it can be for varying reasons, right? They could be insecure and feel like they're gonna get rejected if they speak up or they set a boundary. You know, it's very common for people to fear telling somebody, I don't have time right now, or I can see you next week, and worry that that's going to leave them abandoned. And the interesting part about ghosting, and, and I know we just discussed this in that episode, is that the person that gets ghosted takes on all of those insecurities and feelings that the person doing the ghosting is actually working through or, or experiencing. So if somebody ghosts you because they're fearful that you're going to abandon them, you end up feeling abandoned. That's the irony of the entire thing. But yeah, people ghost because they don't know how to speak up in that moment. Maybe they don't feel it's important. They don't understand the value of communicating to somebody. And I really drive that home. Like you can't set a boundary with someone unless you've communicated first. Now, there's specific contexts where, where the opposite applies, right? If it's a very dangerous, highly abusive situation and your life is at risk, no, don't sit down and try to have like a kumbaya moment and tell them, I'm not talking to you anymore. Just go, right? Or hang up the phone. But in the majority of situations, at least inform the person so they're aware. Otherwise, what happens is somebody is like, hey, where'd you go? Hey, where'd you go? Hey, where'd you go? And you get annoyed, but you're the one who didn't communicate.